The Psychedologist. This episode is a bit of an audio journal of my journey to take Iboga to address my lifelong problematic relationship with food and my body. Iboga is a bush that grows in Gabon that is revered as a sacrament by the Buiti people. The root of the plant is harvested and the bark grated and ingested in a ceremony that lasts nearly two days. Iboga, or its psychoactive alkaloid, Ibogaine, is typically utilized in the West as a tool for opiate and alcohol addiction. In addition to the effect of noribogaine on the endogenous opioid reward system, many say that the experience can shed light on the underlying mechanisms of dependency and addiction as effects of unhealed trauma from that person's history. I started to believe when I first learned about iboga that it could be useful for also addressing eating disorders and other addictions. And the more I learned about it, the more I wanted to find out if this could have larger social implications even. Opiates, although still widely prescribed by doctors, are demonized for their addictive potential and for the number of overdose rates and deaths. Food, on the other hand, is widely abused by people and is a billion-dollar industry. Food is commodified, marketed, sexualized, sourced, and cultivated in unethical and toxic ways. By using food to soothe ourselves, to avoid uncomfortable feelings like anger, despair, boredom, loneliness, we do harm that goes beyond just ourselves and our bodies. The norms of consumption in the Western world uphold a system of oppression that is destructive to animals, plants, people, and ultimately the entire planet. If more can heal the emotional dependence on food, we can take back our power and agency in our bodies. We can stop supporting these oppressive systems. This liberation will have a powerful impact on the work we're here to do on the personal and collective level. During the Aboga experience, I witnessed lots of visions and scenarios playing out, which I describe in this episode. I was expecting what others had described as an objective overview of events from their life with insights, but none of what I saw was clearly related to anything specific in my past. The first piece is an introduction I recorded in the car on the way to the ceremony. The second part is a conversation with Maddie, who brought me to the ceremony. This is uh, a couple days after that we had the conversation. And the final part is my reflections at two months post-ceremony. Oh, and I forgot to mention, I've included some Buiti songs. These are the songs that are played and sung during the Aboga ritual, and that during my ceremony I also listened to. So those are mixed throughout the episode. Here it is. Enjoy. This famous dictum apparently was uttered by Socrates at his trial for impiety and corrupting youth, for which he was subsequently sentenced to death, as described in Plato's Apology. Well, I'm taking a step to examine my life, and no matter what I do, I know that my life is worth living. However, it says it on my business card, know thyself and thou wilt know the universe, and that's Pythagoras. I like the vibe from those statements, and it's interesting that what people said thousands of years ago now um, is governing choices that I'm making in my life, including this one, which this episode is about um, my journey to take Iboga. I want to address a lifelong, toxic, harmful, destructive, abusive relationship. And it's not with a person, 
or a people, it's with food. And in my travels and in my studies, I've seen that there are tantamount ways that humans will hurt themselves in order to escape hurt that they're already feeling. And I'm seeking to understand my relationship to that self-harming in a deeper way and ultimately to resolve it through insight and also through assistance on the neurological level, on the spiritual level, and also socially and psychologically. I have some of my earliest memories are about food and about body dysmorphic things. I remember being in preschool and kneeling down and the way that like your thighs kind of become like this like fat sandwich with your calves. I remember looking at that and thinking, boys don't think that that is attractive. And I have this, my legs look like this because I eat too much. And I don't know how I got those ideas. And now I know that like, Huh. thick thighs actually look pretty all right <laughs> and it's okay any kind of thighs um there's no right way to have a body but those were some of my earliest memories and i always loved sweets i mean my my parents will say it i would would um hunt through the house to find all of the sugary food that they had hidden from me i i was an expert climber of tables and chairs to get on top of the fridge or the closet or wherever the candy was stored um, I would get these big Easter baskets full of candy and Cheetos and all the things that I loved. Uh, I would get McDonald's after going to ballet as a reward. And there's nothing like I, I don't hold it against my parents at all. They like very lovingly um, listened to what I wanted and and honored what my wishes were in my life. Um, but from an early stage, there was this conditioning of, of positive reinforcement through food. And, and that was what reinforced me. And then sometimes after piano, I could go to the convenience store uh, and I would get um, blue drink. <laughs> some of you know what that is. And uh, some other kind of chips or snacks. So the stage has been set for this story, this part of the story, for over 20 years. And uh, throughout my time as a dancer, I struggled with a lot of dysmorphic d- dysmorphia. I should probably should have looked that up. Dysmorphia means um, uh, a, a, a sense of one's body that doesn't reflect reality. Um, that is um, not only dysfunctional but also um, inconsistent with uh, what what's true. And someone can have dysmorphia about their nose or how how much muscle tone they have or their skin color or their acne. Um, most people have something about themselves that they don't like, but people with body dysmorphic disorder think about their real or perceived flaws for hours and hours every day. And I can attest to it that there's almost, you know, not a moment that goes by that I don't have some dysmorphic thought of some kind. Um, I, I thought that I could address that through losing weight and hence had a obsession with weight loss my whole life too. And I, it's not that I don't have that anymore. I still wish to be healthier, but it's like similar to the way my yoga practice has shifted. I started doing yoga for weight loss 10 years ago and now it's part of my spiritual practice. And it's not, a, I don't consider it like I need to exercise today. I'll go to yoga class. It is an added benefit, but my, my yoga practice is worship of the divine and of the divine within myself and finding the center point of those two. So 
weight loss has transformed for me in that way as well, that I want to be healthier. I want there to be less um, pressure on my joints and for me to be a size that's harmonious with like what my genes want to be. Um, I'd like to honor the food that I eat by choosing foods that my body asks for and having a clear line of communication and something I've been lacking my whole life. I had the idea from about the age of seven that if I could throw up the food that I ate, that I wouldn't be fat anymore because I wouldn't have the calories inside. And I learned um, from someone who was trying to protect me that if you stick your fingers down your throat, that can make you throw up and that some people do that to not gain weight. And it was, it was introduced to me as like, that's what sick people do. So like, make sure you don't do that. Like, let me put that on your radar. It is actually the opposite. Um, and so then I spent a few years trying to figure out how to actually make that happen. I would get really frustrated and like try all these different ways to make it happen and also be scared of it happening. And I finally succeeded in like inducing myself to throw up when I was about 11. I don't remember exactly when during that time. I also learned that I could restrict how much food I ate. And it was the only time in my life that I could actually restrict, um, around sixth grade. And I lost, um, I'm not sure what I weighed before I lost weight, but I know I weighed 98 pounds at one point. And that was like, I was like, wow, this is really significant. I got a lot of positive feedback at first. And then I started getting the like, don't get too skinny and comments like that from my family. And what was so funny is people expected that because I was losing weight, I was also happier. Like you, you must be doing really well. You've lost some weight. Uh, and I think that it could have been, there are all these points at which I recognized that I could have gotten help sooner if I hadn't been like, um, if I hadn't been faced with these interactions that like put values to what I was doing that, that weren't necessarily true values. I don't know if that makes sense. Like if someone said that the right thing to do to be a good girl is to listen to your teacher and to learn all the material, then that's what I would have done. And so I assumed that because people were saying, I must be doing better, I must be happier because I lost weight, then losing weight is what makes you happy. Or if people are happy, then they lose weight. So I just missin I connected two things that shouldn't necessarily have been connected. And so after getting down to 98 pounds, I had this incident where I went to a family, um, a college reunion of my dad's and it was up at his old college and they served lobster and I like the whole week leading up to it I knew that there was going to be lobster and I was like well I like really don't want to eat that because there's a lot of butter and it's very caloric food Uh, but then when we got there I caved and I ate a lobster and then I walked around the woods wanting to die and, and being like, should I just like go throw up somewhere? And then just being like, well, that sounds disgusting, like throwing up this lobster. And so I just like sat with it instead. And after that point, I steadily gained weight back. I got home. I was 103. I'm like, wow, I gained five pounds at this trip. And then I was 108. And then I was 113. I distinctly remember the numbers on the scale going up and it went up and up and up. And then I entered high school and I uh, I don't know, junior or senior year, I was like 185 or 190. And it didn't matter what size I was. I always felt really bad about my body. I felt really ashamed. And I sought validation of my worth through relationships with men. And in some way, I was like seeking 
a more positive relationship to my body by feeling um, attractive and desirable and sexy, yet it didn't really quench the need. And, and the need was for me to validate those things within myself. So fast forward to college. I, someone asked me, did you study psychology because you've had issues with food? And it's not exactly why. Um, I studied psychology because from the time I was young, people were saying, oh, you're such a little psychologist. Oh, you're a little therapist, aren't you? And I didn't know what any of those things were. What is that? Um, and then when I was in high school, I saw there was a class, psychology. And I'm like, oh, that's what everyone says I am. I should study that. And it was dissonance from the beginning. I didn't resonate with anything I was learning. It felt like a lot of history and theory that uh, I couldn't assimilate into what I knew. And yet I didn't want to change tracks. I wasn't more attracted to something else. So in college, I studied psychology. And I also got, like, not the greatest grades. Like, I tell my students this. I'm like, I got a two on the AP exam. That's like two out of five. Um, I couldn't even get college credit for it. In college, undergrad, whoops, I, like, bullshitted a lot of my papers. I didn't really learn the material. And then when undergrad finished, I didn't have a direction next. So, oh, just go to more school. And so I decided to do a clinical psychology master's degree, which wouldn't set me up to be a therapist. It would just give me another credential. And I still had a little bit of, like, money saved for college. So I went into that. And that's when I started becoming perfectionistic about learning everything exactly. And I was being the good little girl again that um, took the material and, you know, could just like spit it right back to you. And it felt good to engage in a more intense way with my studies again, like kind of how I had been in elementary and middle school. I slacked off in high school and college. Um, the problematic relationship with food persisted all through this time and I thought that becoming a therapist would help me solve it because I'd have the insight to help other people so surely I could help myself and that wasn't the case uh, I finished my master's degree and I got a job that would set me up to be a good PhD candidate I got fired from that job basically and I attribute some of that to that I still had an active eating disorder all, all through that time. When I worked at the Cheesecake Factory from the age of 18 till 24, um, my problematic relationship with food was prominent and it affected my relationships with other people and the lies and the shame and uh, not confiding in other people. I went to therapy also and told some of the truth, but never told the whole truth. It's like, someone was just saying to me how you never tell anyone the full truth so I didn't it, not even myself I didn't even know what the full truth would look like then after a series of other events I decided to travel to Costa Rica and to experience ayahuasca and it was in the back of my mind maybe this will help my eating disorder maybe this will help my body dysmorphia but it was on the surface more just like, oh, this will be another notch in my belt. Like, this is another cool story to be able to tell people. And, and yet, leading up to that ceremony, I was supposed to bring in questions. And I came up with six questions. Like, why, why the problematic relationship with food? Why did this person break up with me? I wondered about other stop-ups I'd had in my life. And it all felt unrelated. And yet the way I reacted to having a psychedelic experience and the way that that feels, giving over that control, um, I learned was the answer to 
all of the questions, which is that I've tried to, I've tried to go through my life um, as the conductor and knowing what is best for me. And, and yet what I assimilated as what is best for me was what I was told by other people. So I started thinking about things in a new way, honoring the wisdom of traditions that have been around for a long time, becoming more critical of capitalism and patriarchy. I mean, I didn't, patriarchy wasn't even on my radar at that time. I didn't learn about that in undergrad or grad school, which is, it seems like a nice sort of justice that I now teach undergrads and I get to bring that into the classroom. It feels really good. It's restorative. So it's been about four years now that I've worked with psychedelics in a healing and explorative capacity, both to delve into realms of my intellect and into what my body knows and also to um, try to heal and, and do other work as well. But what I'm trying to talk to you about today is that for the first time I'm putting everything out on the table and I'm asking my psyche and I'm asking the medicine and the energy around me and all of the allies that I feel present in this journey that I've finally been aware to feel uh, I'm asking for, for healing from the only thing I've ever known in my life when it comes to food and my body which is guilt and and shame and covering up and suppressing so I'm undergoing this experience for science <laughs> and also to experience a new plant teacher and the traditions of a culture through someone who's been given this medicine and initiated into this culture to carry and share these teachings. Um, I'm going through this because I've heard that people sometimes experience an objective overview of significant events in their life which they had lost memory of or distorted or misunderstood and as an outside observer the insights can be drawn past traumatic events um, can be seen how they relate to current problematic behavior and, and that can be laid to rest, that pattern. So from a biological perspective, I also know that Iboga resets the opioid receptor system in an interesting way that we don't totally understand. I believe that its efficacy with treating opioid addiction will also apply to other disorders of um, compulsive use of substances like food, or substances or experiences, food, sex, shopping, video games, alcohol. And I'm also aware that, albeit a small voice that doesn't reach a whole lot of people, but I am a voice in the psychedelic movement. And Iboga is mostly known for helping people with opiate addiction. And opiates, even though we still prescribe them a buttload, are fairly demonized in common um, diction amongst people. But food, on the other hand, is not. Food is actually a billion-dollar industry. It's highly commodified. It's marketed. It's sexualized. It's sourced in unethical and toxic ways. So as I thought about this yesterday, I realized that not only do we uphold a system of oppression of people and animals, also the plant kingdom and the entire earth system that we're in, but we do this and we also hurt ourselves. So if more people can heal their toxic relationship with food and can take back their power and their agency in their own bodies and in their lives to stop supporting these oppressive systems, I think we'll have an overall impact on the work that we're here to do. That 
on my end, I feel I'm discovering every day. So that is my intention to experience changes on a biological, psychological, social, and spiritual level, to be open, to allow for these teachings to come through me, and to be more in connection with my intuition um, for the important changes that I want to make as a person in this universe. So this is me before Iboga, and I'll see you on the other side. I've said that many times, but I really mean it this time. Come on, 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 come on,
car going up before the big drop like I don't want to be on this ride I don't even like living I don't want to have fun I just want to be safe and so I was guessing back and forth if it was the right thing or not but I knew that I was going to do it so I got to New York and then it was like basically once I was in the door the process began she just wanted to say you were like the calmest human being going into something like this that I've probably ever seen and maybe more than I've seen, you know, like, yeah, you were very calm and collected and cool, calm and collected. Yeah. So. Yeah. I get told that a lot. Like people say, I, like I own the sweat lodge. They're like, Oh, the sweat lodge looks like your thing. And the whole time I'm in the sweat, I'm like, fuck this. <laughs> I'm in here. Yeah. Grandmother. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then it's like, fake it till you make it, too. Right. Yeah, well, you do a good job at that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Big faker. So, yeah, I arrived, and um, the ceremony starts with going to the water, a place where you can hear the water. That's, like, part of the um, magic. And so I went to a place where we could hear the water, and we um, called in the elements and helpful guides and held hands and took some deep breaths and then I was told to find two items on the beach to keep and to have with me to um, connect with the beginning of the ceremony and to have those on the altar and then at the end of the ceremony I would throw one back in to release anything that I didn't want to leave the ceremony with basically to represent that and the other one I would keep. So I found, well, it's this beach with all this trash on it. <laughs> and I even found like a plastic cow and it was just <laughs> funny to take. It like, had, um, one of its ears was missing and it had like these big brown udders. And I ended up choosing an oyster shell and a little brown, I don't know, bowl. You saw it. It's a dish. It almost looked like something from a ceremony of past. It did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Maybe it was. But since it was like on a beach filled with trash, it's probably made in China. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe it was used for yeah, there's there's like some uh, some cool like religious stuff draped on there, like red scarves, like some Buddhist stuff, some Hindu stuff. Oh the um facilitators found a chicken down there once, a live chicken. Yeah. On the beach. Yeah. yeah. What did they do with it? They took it with them, <laughs> took it out, and then they found a farm to give it to. Oh wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, cer- the ceremony began with um, me receiving a piece of iboga to chew. And because I would be taking it in capsules, it was to taste what medicine tastes like and to, to like commune with it in that way. And I was all about that. And it was really bitter and a little bit sour, not like ayahuasca, more like dirt, even more like dirt than ayahuasca. Um, 
crunchy and uh, it was just a little piece, but kind of like, yeah, like sour um, clay dirt. <laughs> and I chewed it and swallowed it. And then I was given my first capsule and I didn't realize I was just, I did not ask a lot of questions going into this. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized that going along as, oh, I'm going to be taking another capsule for the next five hours. Okay. So that's where it started. Drove back to the space where the full ceremony would happen and um, lit the candle on the altar. And they had made a, an altar with like, there was like a, all, all these different, the, the goddess statue at, um, there was a little confusion about the name. Now I can't remember either of the names. Hmm. Well, it was like the, like the warrior goddess, like the protector yeah. goddess. And she's this big bodacious goddess. And that was good. Like she has this like hourglass figure and that was like kind of behind the candle and the candle was yellow, which is one of my favorite colors. And, They'd created a sigil, which um, I didn't really know what that meant. And then during the ceremony, I had this big realization about the sigil, which was really cool. And so sat down, talked about intention, watched a video of um, a Buiti ceremony in Gabon. And that was really, it turned out to be very important for my trip as well, because I had a lot of imagery of Gabon during the experience. And I think that that like video before kind of cued it. So within about two hours, I was feeling kind of tingly, feeling the, the come up, the suspense, um, feeling like electricity in my body. And I was wondering when I would start really feeling it because it had been two hours. And that's when I asked, like, when, like, does this come on? I said, oh, it takes five or six hours. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I'd already taken another dose by then. And so you were taking one dose every hour for five hours. That's right. Okay. And the total amount was 2.3 grams, which is about equivalent to um, an initiation dose in the tribe or okay. called a flood dose. And the reason for the prolonged dosing is that the stomach can only absorb so much at once. And you want to like extend the peak so that you're in that state for a longer period. So you can get into the deeper work. And that was, that was really what ended up happening. Mm. Yeah, but it's exhausting. It's exhausting to be at a peak for, for so long, an intense peak. I can't imagine. <laughs> yep. And so I started feeling some, some sensations in my body. Like at one point, I felt a hand resting on the top of my belly, like palm pressed and like fingertips pointing up towards my chest. And it was like, it was like a solid weight there and it was warm and I knew that no one was touching me and I knew I wasn't touching myself and I felt it. It was a, it was a physical hallucination, a kinesthetic hallucination or yeah, bodily. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It was a hallucination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or was it? I mean, hallucination, right? It's like sensory input about something that's not there. Um, and it, physically it wasn't there. I mean, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's something manifested from your mind, supposedly, but yeah, I mean, what's to say what is real and what isn't? Yeah, that is so much truer now after this experience, honestly. Mm -hmm. I'm already feeling like 
there are things that I know aren't true that I've been believing already. Again, now I'm just a few days out. Mm-hmm. Like what? Uh, <laughs> uh, like like that things matter that don't really matter. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. And time and efficiency. Mm, efficiency, yes. <laughs> so I wrote body melting, and that was because I felt I like felt my body like wax and then all my clothes just kind of like slumped down to the ground as like my body melted into a pool of wax all around me so you saw this you felt this you hurt like what how did this manifest that was a feeling accompanied by a visualization because i i felt i was feeling changes in my body and then i felt that happen and i saw it happening in my mind too like a movie yeah so you saw the like a movie wow like i saw it from like kind of above and behind myself the body melting the clothes like in a pile (laughs) melted skin on the floor and i wrote plant teachers you don't use people so why use plants because i find it very hard to use someone um if there's like someone has something that i need like i will not try to like i i feel very conscious of like not just taking from that person instead of like giving something to um similar to like when you go through the woods and you take something out you should put in some to leave some tobacco or leave something else behind right that's like good foraging practice or that's that's what wild crafting technically is 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 not just taking from the woods but like making a train it's like when that's like that's like a relationship is when you give something you take something yeah yeah Mm. sure yeah so I was thinking about um, a sense of entitlement that I might have with plants that I eat and work with Mm -hmm. medicinally for um, like oh heal me like this is like medicine and I'm not thinking of it as the dynamic thing that it is I'm not relating or I'm not being in relationship with it I'm taking instead using it I guess we don't know what the plants get from when we eat them. Maybe they get something. Maybe they take something. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Well, and then if they're getting something from it, but I'm I'm still using it in the spirit of just using it, like that doesn't seem like the way I want to go about things. Yeah, it would be rather be rather than just being hidden with their intentions and your intentions. It would be better, yeah, to, I guess to have some openness and some intention about the intentions. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> mm. So, oh, I also wrote animal ancestors. Okay, I haven't talked about this yet. I had this idea that if we have karma and there's maybe reincarnation of like previous lives, that, you know, I've talked about like what did we do in a previous life, mm-hmm. and then what what about animals? What if an animal does something to another animal? then like do animals reincarnate as other animals and if so do they bear a karmic burden of like their prior crimes as like when they were an antelope yeah i mean i think in buddhism they talk about this they talk about that but i haven't read enough about that to know the answers but i think they they definitely do talk about it Hmm. like maybe i think if you do something you're human you go back to an animal and maybe if you do something you go higher up to an to a human from an animal i don't know it is the highest thing to be a human even I doubt it. No, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, who who knows? <laughs> the next thing I have is 
so th this was still during the come up. I was still sitting in meditation, very deep, like very still meditation. And then if there was something that I really wanted to remember and to say on the show, I would like come out of the meditation, write it down and then go back in and drop right back in in a second. Like no, no time missed. Stop groveling to people just to try to save them from having some bad feelings about themselves or me. It's like, if a student is late with their homework, they come to me, like, I, like, thank them profusely for bringing the homework, and they say, like, I was feeling bad that I wasn't here. I'm like, no, 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 like, I'm sorry. Like, it's okay. Like, I'm, I'm like, trying to ease, like, their tension, their pain. Um, if I feel like I'm letting someone down, I... I just can't even sit with that like until it's like it's like an OCD thing like I have to do a ritual to feel like I've righted the wrong that they did the wrong of how I might have let them down but, and that may not even be me but they're feeling a negative thing that like I could ease but you but you're saying you let them down because they didn't do what they were supposed to do yeah yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Interesting. And then it, for someone to feel like a bad feeling about me, such as another student example, if they if one of them gets a bad grade on a test and they're coming to me and they're saying, like, I don't want this bad grade, I feel like I failed them. And, like, I failed them as a teacher and that they got this bad grade because I wasn't a better professor. And then I remind myself, like, you're supposed to read the goddamn textbook. Like, that's your homework. Yeah, I just teach like the important points, the ones that can be better illustrated in the classroom. They have these, so and it's like ultimately it holds them back from being like taking ownership of responsibility. Exactly. Where is responsibility? Is it your responsibility? Is it theirs? Where does it, where does it lie? Yeah, it's and that comes back to the thing I was talking to you about about the sacredness of one's word, and how I want to be in more. Um, integrity with my word as in if i'm going to be somewhere at a certain time like not be late if i'm going to like you know be prepared right going someplace like make sure i set aside the time to be like to arrive with everything that i need and not be stressed out and like needing extra stuff i don't know when you're making a face oh like if you make plans to keep those plans oh. <laughs> we were talking about that earlier yeah and switch yep definitely and and I want to be I want people to feel like they can trust me so that's a good place to start yeah keeping my word oh um, you don't need to tell the world a story I'm only talking myself into a story so you know when like people are trying to tell everyone all these things about themselves and it's like really man you're just saying that for your own like confidence or like mm justifying it to yourself kind of yeah like like if someone's you know bragging about how rich they are or something it's like we assume like oh like you know i don't care if you're rich like you you must need to hear yourself talking about how rich. yeah yeah so you can feel rich so you're just talking yourself into a story about how you're rich yeah and so i think that it makes me want to pay more attention to the story i'm trying to tell the world which is even like me walking around holding in my belly and like not wearing clothes that would like show the curviness of my body i am telling myself i'm talking myself into a story about how i look and how i should look rather than like uh going into the world as what i am in 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 this form that i'm in i don't need to lie about it 
by changing it, by cha- by holding it in my stomach. So when is how do so how do you know what your story is and what your story you're making up is that you want to present? Like I guess with with that with the physical, like it's more obvious. But like with with you know, when you meet someone, you're like, oh, my time to present who I am, and you know, some people, I, yeah. I'm Leah. <laughs> but like, you know, like because some people are like, oh, when they identify with money and stuff like that, they're gonna talk about that. Identify with like, oh, traveling. I'm gonna talk about, oh, I've been here, here, and here, mm-hmm. or with the work I do. Oh, I'm a, I'm a. I'm a construction worker, or I'm a vegan, or I'm a mother, or I'm a father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But are our stories what we do? Are they, is that really who we are? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, all we are is awareness. <laughs> oh, is that true? Spoiler alert. <laughs> what a catch. The shit tank spigot. I saw these food troughs, enormous containers like big bucket drums cut with holes in the top of them to just like be filled with diarrhea light to medium brown little red flecks diarrhea in this huge tank with sausage links floating in it that were shit connected to each other like sausage links and there was a spigot, so you could turn it on, and it would just release it all onto the ground, and like spray onto the ground and make mud. <laughs> and but you you were saying earlier that it was like almost like it was like four people or something. It was like four people to take to yeah. fill up a bucket of and bring home, or or maybe a plate. <laughs> yeah, it was. was that- it was like the way that food is served. Mm-hmm. It was shit. So what do you think that represents? <laughs> all I know is that I saw it, and I knew it was a strange thing to see. And then the thought I had was, something's not right about this. <laughs> and that was all. Mm. Like, something is off. And, and then I looked around, like, what is off? And there were people milling around doing other things, and there's just, like, something wrong going on here. Well, it's interesting, just because, you know, where does the shit go? And something eats it, right? Something it goes to something it goes into fertilizer goes into the ocean and something or it goes underground and then something eats it. it's some someone else's food right so I don't know and like where does it go someone maybe someone has to eat it <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah the maggots mm. I mean I've been wondering about this if that was some kind of metaphor for the like shit I've been fed in my life in terms of information, misinformation, and and also um, food that has, like, a trail of blood behind it. Mm -hmm. Different sorts of cruelty and oppression through the factory farming and whatnot. Yeah. And all the vegetables are grown with with, well, with, like, cow blood and I think manure and for fertilizer and stuff, so I don't know. Yeah. And that's an appropriate segue into what started happening next, which was that I got an intense feeling of heat and pressure and like almost like rocket ship taking off, like the trip is starting feeling. And I I remember the only other time I've had such a rapid like (laughs) feeling was the first time I drank ayahuasca. And both times, that time and this time, I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) And like, like holding on to my seat 
And then I was like, I, I'm like, I feel nauseous. And they like put the purge bucket next to me. And they're like, oh, it's like probably a little too soon to purge. And <laughs> I'm just like shaking my head like, well, <laughs> I purge. Um, so you don't drink water. So your stomach's almost empty. So it's just basically iboga um, and a little like stomach acid and saliva. And um, I was shaking and I felt better. <laughs> I just went back to sitting like a champ. Were you scared at all? Well, when the like the strong tripping feeling came, I felt um, it was like the roller coaster going down for the first time. The stomach, like stomach, was weightless, and I I was getting ready to be incapacitated. So, were you scared? <laughs> I was telling myself a story that. I, that is a true story, I think, which is that my I have the ability to withstand anything and that it's it's like attachment that will be what keeps me from like just being with something. It's always attachment and aversion. So were you scared? <laughs> you still didn't answer the question. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was scared. Oh, cool. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah, I was scared. Yeah. Sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, <laughs> we then talked about... So I said something that made us talk about cultural appropriation for a second, and then we decided that it should really be called cultural inappropriation because it's inappropriate. Mm, there we go. <laughs> But I guess for what appropriate to appropriate means doesn't make sense. But um, then I wrote Western med Western medicine and can't drink medicine like fifth sacred thing. Ah, yeah. So I was thinking about this way that it is in the fifth sacred thing, the book by my permaculture teacher Starhop, and um, the soldiers that are coming in to invade are on these boosters and they're like immuno boosters that keep them from getting sick because they eat this horrible food. They like don't get enough sleep. They're in these horrible conditions. They're just like, um, it's like a military machine and they are, um, you know, they, and, and most of them have been taken from villages and enslaved to be in the army. So when they come to this like last refuge to take over the natural resources, the only natural resources left in the world, um, no one wants to defect, even though they're like, oh my God, it's so beautiful here. And the, and the people in the village are like, come, like, join me. Like, you don't have to fight in this army. Like, there's a place at my table if you'll join me. And they, they're like, we can't defect because we, we need these boosters to stay alive. And so I was thinking about how, um, um, I was empathetically relating to some people that might take depression meds and feel as though they might become like too depressed or they might become like so suicidal that it's not safe if they go off their medication or so anxious that they can't go to work and they have all these responsibilities and yet to take ayahuasca to take iboga or these natural medicines you can't really be on any psychoactive meds or there's like it's a lot of risks and um so i was comparing how those soldiers were like given a medication so that they couldn't be naturally healed and that that's sort of what happens in the world today yeah, I mean, we're even on a less extreme scale. We're just, you know, everything is provided for us in a way that, like, 
if we didn't have the state and the system, we wouldn't be, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't know how to grow our own food. We don't know how to, to like take care of ourselves. If it's not something that we can buy, we're on like the teat of the government and everything. And so it's like for medicine, definitely like, cause we don't know how to heal ourselves. I'm like, you know, where some cultures are like, Oh, well I can go and grab this medicine, you know, this plant, this plant and make a brew to help my cold. We don't know how to do that anymore. And yeah, it's like, yeah, you feel, you know, I guess you f- it's tough. <laughs> and those soldiers wouldn't have needed those immuno boosters if they were getting nutritious food and rest and if they were in a nurturing environment. And just as if we weren't in industrialized society, like we might not need the any any medicines or, or like we wouldn't be as sick. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's a, yeah, when we're, when we're, when we're, addicted like like those i mean i haven't read the book yet but like they seem to be addicted to these things where like if they don't take it they will die and i think even with like um uh, medicines for depression and stuff we're told that if you don't take it you're gonna go crazy you won't be happy you know i i know people who've been like who've been told their whole lives that if they go off their medicine they're gonna get go really bad and they've been on it for so long that they don't even know if it's true. Yeah. Like, remember, remember before you started taking your medicine, how things were, do you want to go back to that? Like, as yeah. though the medicine is what like got you out of that place. Like maybe there was something important going on there and you, you were taken out of that process. Yeah. Maybe you do need to go back into it. Yeah. And also it's like, maybe there's a situation that was going on that was causing this and you're out of that situation now, but you're still on the medicine because you don't know what it's like to be off it in a different situation. Cause I think there's a lot is, you know, there's a, there is a lot of nature, but it's, I think we had this discussion the other day. Nurture is maybe a little stronger. <laughs> yeah. But when two things are like dynamic forces interacting with each other constantly and you can't separate them, then can one be stronger than the other? Like nature and nurture are acting on each other. Definitely. But I think like, like I was saying earlier about technology, like we, use technology as a way to defeat our nature and like so like oh you know because in, in nature we would have just died at this age because of that but now we've, we've all these drugs and stuff to keep us longer living or like you know so we don't our, our we've, we've 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 surpassed our nature in many ways and we even try to suppress that surpass it in more ways like psycho psychologically it's like oh we can take this pill that will fix our nature our nature to be bad people oh we take a pill you know or like i'm depressed take a pill you know we've maybe i don't know if it works or not but like it's a yeah we'll see we'll see what happens in the future with (laughs) time will tell and then people live to be so old that they're getting alzheimer's and it's like oh alzheimer's is so horrible but like what is gonna break down like something's eventually gonna yeah everything ends sometime Mm-hmm. Yeah. One system fails and then, and then it's like, oh, like stop that system from failing. And then it's something else. But like our world needs that system to fail maggots, <laughs> you know, the it's, it's, it, it, sir, we survive on the death of other things and it's a cycle and we need those things to die. So new things can be born. So the reason we keep saying maggots is because at the end of the Buiti songs, they often say, basse, basse. And when the ceremony was over, one of the facilitators was telling me that that's 
and, and I'm like, is it like amen? And, the, and they're like, well, no. Oh, actually, I guess it's used as amen is used, but it means maggots. That's because maggots are the life force. They are the creators. They are what recycles the um, useful and um, important like flesh of animals into these like little um, nuggets, these little like candy bug nuggets for the, for the earth and for other animals to eat. They, they they start the cycle over. There wouldn't be any, you know, there wouldn't be the plants and there wouldn't be the tree of life without them. You know, they're like the base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the trip intensified. I started, I um, got up and was lying down um, and you don't want to move because the it's like it's like being very very drunk your vision is as though you were very drunk and as is your body it's a dissociated feeling and kind of like a spinning if you open your eyes and like like look like from one direction to another and the whole room flies in that other direction and all the lights are smearing in different ways so it's it's, oh okay (laughs) and so i was told you you'll really not want to move okay (laughs) Um, so I stopped, stopped moving and then, yeah, just like kind of carefully got up to lying down and then had, had these images of the cosmos as in outer space, including the earth, like could definitely see the earth, but could see so many other solar systems and galaxies and, and, um, planets within them and stars, like as though space was not an important construct for seeing something because, I know that with my eyes, like I can only take in uh, 160 degrees worth of of vision, right? And some of that's peripheral, but it's like I could see 360 degrees around me above and all like I could see it all. I had vision for all of it. And what I watched was the constant exploding and creating and combusting and shifting of all of those molecules and particles that compose the universe, the multiverse collapsing in on each other and and it was it was time it was seeing time in it was seeing time in like the most elementary way like oh that's what time is time's (laughs) not being on time or waiting or or um giving something some time, like time is the big changes and the big shifts. And those changes were embodied as like, it wasn't pieces of candy, but this is just a good um, metaphor for it. Like, uh, um, what is it called? Like a gumball machine. Yeah. Okay. Like a, like a big gumball machine that has all these gumballs in it. And then you put a quarter in, you turn the knob and like your gumball comes out and all the gumballs shift positions to like, because like, there, there was space created by this one gumball coming out, and then, then they all shift, and the, the relationship to each other changes. And it was like, it's kind of like that. We call mo- molecules shifting places, like a Rubik's Cube, too. Yeah. And it was beautiful. And, and later, I was thinking about how the Earth on its orbit, and then it, on its axis, rotating and then orbiting the sun and then that galaxy orbiting the center of the universe or whatever, um, that, that like the earth turning and like the sun, like setting or, you know, the earth turning away from the sun is a dance of light. It's, it's literally like light dancing, um, as the, these planets move through like space. Hmm. 
So there's like one, there's multiple suns too, or did you yeah. see, you saw different suns? Dance of light, anything that creates light because the stars right. are shining light. Yeah. We can see. Yeah. And then the stars move in the sky and that's like the dance of light too. Yeah. It's like movement. So it was like, it was really, I think that the theme to all this is like decentralized. Like instead of thinking of myself as the center of the universe, I like saw the entire universe. I saw, um, instead of thinking as the sun setting or, you know, stars shifting position in the sky, it's like actually like me shifting position and, um, in all of, all of us moving in relation to each other. And was this all just being shown to you? Was something telling you about this or was it just pictures flashing and you coming up with your own ideas or how was it like, was there like a spirit or some sort of guide or something or like how is this information coming to you i've not had almost any communication from a guide or or like a voice at nothing like that um i've been shown images and then and, and like known right away like oh that's what that's that and and then you know did i name it as that or it's like seems so surprising so unexpected um so it, it was me making it at times it was me making sense of what I saw and yeah. other times it was seeing things and just like being like, Oh, that's what that is. <clears throat> Cause I, I do think that seeing the, like the shifting of the universe in that way was, it is the way that it is, but I had never thought of it that way. So it's like, so then when I see that and I'm like, what is that? Oh, it's that. It wasn't like me trying to figure it out. It was like, it, it was me figuring out something else. It's like figuring out in the reverse direction. <clears throat> All right, and we're back. I got we got interrupted by my nana needing me, and now we've had dinner, and now here we are. Cool. What were we talking about? Um, about you'd asked if there were messages from entities, or uh, am I told things? How do I know that these things are what what I think they are? That's where we were. That's where we were. Cool. That's where we are. But the next note that I have of consequence is. Raise my hands up high and say, I'm Leah. And that was just like, <laughs> it was a hilarious image of me sitting on a hillside and the wind was like blowing through the grasses and they were like shimmering with dew and it's a beautiful scene and just like flailing my body into the air and, but I was sitting down and like, like raise my hands up high and just say, I'm Leah. <laughs> So we should all do that? We should all raise our hands up behind and say, I'm Leah! No, say, I'm, and then whatever your name is. <laughs> try it. Just try it. Right now, I'm holding the microphone, but... Well, I mean, you don't have to. Well, maybe the, the listeners can try. All right, on three, we'll all say, I'm Leah! Okay, let's try it. Ready? No, not <laughs> I'm Leah. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> Only I'm Leah! <laughs> oh, okay. You're Leah, you're I'm Leah. Leah. <laughs> yeah, throw your hands up and say, all right, no, it's okay. We can just save that one for another time. <laughs> Mm. So I had some kinesthetic hallucinations of different things happening to my body. Like I felt that hand early on. At this point, though, the trip had really started to, uh, had really started. And um, so I was lying on my back, but slightly propped up. And um, I felt the, like my belly, the center of my body as a big red sun. And it was bouncing on a trampoline. It was bouncing up and down, up and down, up and down with um, almost no, 
it, it would be like consistently moving up and then consistently moving down, like not like slowing at the top and slowing at the down. Which is like, boom, 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 big red sun bouncing on a trampoline. That's what I wrote. And I thought it would make me dizzy, but it wouldn't. But if I put my hands on my belly and I took a deep breath, it would stop. And then as soon as I finished the deep breath, it would resume. Hmm. Was it fun? Was it interesting? Like, was it just like, oh, it's happening? I was trying to make sense of what it might be, whether it was just a bodily hallucination or if that was like, I've had other sensations of shaking, something shaking inside of me. And it seemed like significant, like a clearing out of energy or uh, um, something like that I don't need anymore, like trying to escape me. So I thought maybe I'm like, this force is like shaking me to like let go of some tension or something. But um, it, it truly just felt like, like, whoa, like that's happening right now. Yeah. Wild. Yep. And then I had this vision of one of the facilitators as an ambulance mermaid. That's what I wrote. Ambulance mermaid where something inside of me died, some organ, and it came out of me through like, through like, it, it didn't specifically come out of any orifice, but let's just say like like a nether orifice. And it came out and it was like a deflated oyster, like pink and slimy and slippery, but it didn't have any body to it. It was just like, like flat. And the facilitator came through in this vision and had like a magical wand syringe thing and like kind of like touched or injected the organ and it like filled with life and it came back and then it floated back up inside of me and I was cured. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And they flew in like, like a, like flying on air, but it's like swimming in a a mermaid type way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I wrote is a fuck ton, a buttload of ebogues. And I thought that I might have been making up those words because I couldn't remember if I'd heard them before. Um, that it was just like I was like a fuck ton, fuck ton. Like oh, that's like such a such a good phrase, <laughs> a fuck ton. And, and then a buttload is actually a it's an actual amount. I think I don't know if it's medieval times or something, but it has to do with like a buttload of wine is an actual measurement. And do you think <laughs> that they called butts like butts back then? I mean, I have no clue. <laughs> I just have heard it. It's it's a amount of wine, I guess, or or amount of liquid, I guess. Mm. So I've heard <laughs> a buttload of iboga. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Ponder on that all your whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, and then I was thinking about different people. Different people came in in visions, and so I wrote their names down. Um, here it's Emily. I thought of Emily. Wrote her name in all caps. Uh, and then I wrote discern, imagination, and intuition. Because it was really hard to see what visions were. Because it was just constant visions. Constant imaginary situations and pictures and phrases. And like just a lot of content coming through. And I couldn't tell what was my imagination running wild. Because it was very wild. And what was something useful. I hate to say that because like, anything could be useful, but it, it was hard to separate out sometimes. Like, what does, wh- what does any of this mean? Is this just like me like tripping really hard? Yeah. 
Then I wrote, have to do with food, what I did with weed. So I mentioned in a previous episode that I had an experience with rape where I sat and took some rape a few weeks before the iboga ceremony. And the rape said, you will not smoke anything and you'll reevaluate after iboga. So I stopped smoking tobacco, cannabis, herbs, and um, just when I would see them, I just wouldn't consider the possibility that I would smoke them. They were just, it was just like seeing a neutral thing instead of like seeing it and thinking like, oh, like, do I want to smoke right now? It was just like, that was off the table. And so at this point, I think I was considering that maybe I have to like look at a lot of different foods and and not see them as something I can actually eat because I abuse them when I eat them, like things with sugar and um, like certain like nut butters and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Well, like when you said with the, about the weed thing, like you looked at them and they were neutral. That's because you chose to make them neutral or because you you just would happen that you couldn't see them as anything else. Mm, it was like I chose it and it was such a strong choice that when I would see it afterward, it wouldn't be an option. So it's up to you. Yeah. It was like, I know that I have free will and with my free will, I chose to place a limit on myself. And then, and then suddenly I, I guess I still would choose not to, smoke it but it was without the feeling of i want to do this it was just like oh no i just can't like i imagine after someone's been sober for long enough they don't they don't really crave the thing that they're sober from they just it's just another thing but with the weed thing it wasn't like you were sober for a while it was like yesterday you didn't smoke and now today you got this calling not to smoke but was it just instantly you didn't want to or you still wanted to but you just decided i'm not going to even if I want to. I had decided that I wasn't going to, so even thinking about wanting to just wasn't worth it. What I don't understand. What does, it mean? what does worth it mean? Well, why would I think about the fact of wanting to smoke weed when I knew that I wouldn't? Because it was so strong. It was so strong of a commitment to not do it. I knew I wasn't going to break it. Because, but not because you didn't want to. Because it wouldn't have been right. Just because something told you? Yeah, something, me. But like, so if you wanted to not do something, but like, I mean, like with an addiction, you want to stop, but also you want to do it. Right. And you can't stop. Yeah. But enough piles up, enough is enough, or rock bottom comes, and... For the first three days of not smoking, I felt like smoking. And I regretted that that had all happened. Like, I wish I could just be being normal right now and, you know, like being able to smoke if I want to. But then the clarity that came and the sense of, oh, this was the right thing. This was the right choice. Uh, You know, because I... Um, started getting back things that I enjoy, like my really good short-term memory, my dreams and sense of clarity and like no fog when I wake up. So how is it now coming back with, because you said you brought down food. Yeah. So how is that? 
I still have this, I still have a lot of body dysmorphic voices and eating disordered voices that are active in my head. Frankly, like, I don't know, you know, it's, it's the other side of the experience. I don't feel altered anymore, but the experience is still really fresh. And yet all my surroundings are my old surroundings. And they say this is the big risk when people are addicted to opiates, they go do iboga and then they go right back into the environment they were in. Because even though that experience was powerful and I came out of it being like, how could I ever be anything like how I was? Like I'm forever changed. I do feel changed and yet nothing around me has changed. So I'm already slipping back into like old ways of thinking. Mm. And the having to do with food, what I want to do with... yeah, needing to do with food, what I did with weed is sort of an anorexic thought. It's it's that part of me that's like, I can't have this because um, I can't control myself. So I just won't have it at all. It's restricting. It's like, it's controlling and restricting instead of being in the moment with it and being really honest about why you're using that thing, food or whatever it is in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think like, we were kind of talking earlier about like sometimes you can't change something like that's like a feeling or a thought, but then you can add something else. So like, okay, I want this, but I can't have that. So I'll give myself this instead, like some fruit or, I mean, obviously the fruit isn't as good as cake, but like, Well, the thing that wants cake doesn't want fruit. Fruit's not going to do it. But yeah, so you be you just with like, but like you know, not smoking weed is not going to do it. If you want to smoke <laughs> weed, you want to smoke weed, you know. Yeah. But maybe it will. And I guess from my experience with weed and stopping weed, I would be like, oh, I really want to smoke weed, and I keep wanting to. But then after I do stop, I'm like, wow, I feel really good. I don't need it. Yeah, you suddenly you don't want to lose the benefits that you've gained. So yeah, I think with the food, you know, if you just hold out, I mean, obviously it's easier said than done. You can just, oh, just hold out because yeah. it's not, you'll only hold out when you're ready to hold out. Well, and I think when I can craft my environment to, it's like, it's also the holidays. That's, I mean, tonight was like probably the first time I have eaten in out of integrity since leaving the ceremony like I've yeah. but but I've had a lot of obsessive thinking about what I'm eating yeah. because I I expected to come out of this and have it be really easy like be right away tuned into what my body wants rather than acting emotionally um, or being driven by emotion in my food choices mm-hmm. but it hasn't been that at all you know and I haven't had an appetite but I've been like I want to take care of myself and that the experience took a lot out of me so I wanted to get back to feeling good and I knew to do that I had to eat thinking twice about everything I was eating for the mm. first couple of days. I didn't have any sugar at all. And then had like some of that vegan carrot cake. <laughs> Tonight had some pumpkin pie. <laughs> hmm. Feed the need. <laughs> Page. Eric. Chris. Uh, This was something about how my thoughts were going. A 
thought tan- tangent, and then the dominoes come crashing down. I didn't talk about that on the show, right? No, not yet. So it was like I'd have a vision or an image or a situation, and it would be constructed out of all the different parts that make a vision. You know, like what you see and 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 the movement, um, how things are changing, and and then all those parts. As soon as I would look at it, would collapse like kind of like a domino effect of like everything starts to topple you know it's toppling in in a line and then it's like this triggers that and that and then it all, all fall down into uh come crashing down to the to the ground and then all the pieces would disappear and it would be gone and whatever i was focused on seconds ago i would have no sense at all of what it was unless i had written it down uh just thought just came to me so you have these thoughts about something that you don't want to have, you know? But, and at times, those thoughts just are not there. And they kind of just fall and crash and they're gone. So I don't know. I don't know. It just... You're still here. Those thoughts are just gone. Maybe they get built up again, but then they're gone. Mm-hmm. So maybe that, like, they have some power when they're there, but then, poof, they're gone. I don't know. I saw this magician in Costa Rica once, and he said, on the count of three, I'm going to disappear. Uno, dos, poof. He vanished without a trace. Yeah. <laughs> But really, um, (laughs) 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 so are you saying I could employ that as a technique to deal with these anorexic thoughts or the body dysmorphic thoughts, controlling thoughts about eating, like that they are just a construct and like hit that one first domino to like to level them? Maybe. I don't know. It just, it just that because you told me the story earlier and I was just like, okay, but then there's something just something clicked right now when you said it again that was like related to your thoughts about that. I don't know how, but I just I don't know. It seemed like maybe they relate somehow. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done. <laughs> well, what we think and believe is constructed based on other thoughts and beliefs and ways that we know of the world to work. And and then and that's why I get so disappointed when someone lets me down is because I've put a lot of stock into my relationship to them or looking up to them or whatever. And then they do something that that I feel disappointed by or that feels hurtful. And then it's like, and then the whole relationship seems to fall down. But like, what if um, in that case, instead of a collapse, it's like, it's just like a modification of the structure to shift it. And then with the, but then with the like two dimensional, thoughts that drive me to overeat or um that make me really focused on my body dysmorphia those don't rest on a lot of assumptions or like a complex foundation of truths it's really just based on when you get right down to it it's just based on being afraid of not being enough or being wrong or uh, flawed unlovable unworthy afraid that I could have done better, you know? That's what the shame, the shame about my body is like, 
shame that even though I've wanted to lose weight my whole life, I haven't ever satisfactorily like lost the weight for myself. And so if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling um, wrong in my body, is, is there a way to just knock that down by, I don't know, focusing on something that does feel right? I don't know. And then I had this vision about Bill Richards where he squared off like right in my face, like he was just a few inches away from my face. And we looked at each other and he lifted this huge dictionary up beside his face. It was like right next to him. So I was looking at these two things and the dictionary was like a scroll, like a huge paper towel roll. And on the scroll, it was two-sided and it had Latin and it was the history of everything that's ever happened written down. And he smiled like kind of a coy, like jester's smile, like a magician. And he starts spinning the scroll and it's spinning and he's tracing his finger along it. And that's how I read it. And that's how I see everything that's ever happened. Again, like a going over of everything that's come before, which I've, um, the like way I've integrated that was how insignificant each little thing and every enormous thing that happens to us is and yet how it, it's all part of everything that's happening so it all has a place but everything matters just as much as everything else which is like nothing and everything at once dad ah oh. Smoking a cigar in my grandfather's room while talking to my uncle, who is putting the business first as an entity. <laughs> so I have an uncle who's really generous and like very giving and open and honest to everybody. Um, just like no one could think anything bad about him. But many of the visions I had were juxtapositions of things that didn't go together, like the food troughs full of shit or... Um, yeah, like this uncle being um, treating his business as as like how corporations are treated as people. Um, and yeah, I had this cigar and it was old and it had a nasty smell and it was falling apart. And I was trying to smoke it in. Yeah. And I, I called it my grandfather's room, which is so weird because like my grandfather's been dead since I was three. But it's like I was in my Nana's room upstairs um, but I called it, I wrote it in my grandfather's room and the cigar was falling apart and I was trying to hold the ashtray and yeah. And I was like talking business with my uncle. What do you make of that? I don't know. The nasty cigar. Because even like I don't know, a couple of times I'm like I don't I don't know I I could make something up that I could try to but like sometimes you don't I don't know it might just be it might it might come to you another later time or 
Let me ask you this. When you dream, yeah. do you always dream as yourself? Or do you sometimes dream as being another person? Because that vision for me was kind of like I wasn't myself. I was someone else. Maybe I was my grandfather. Mm, maybe. Hmm. Were they in business together? No. Uh, mm. But I think they did shoot the shit before i mean yeah, yeah my uncle's been yeah um, in my family's life for a long time yeah i usually am always myself but it's not like specific well it's, details are specific specific to me but yeah i don't know not yeah at this point i opened my eyes a bit and i noticed that if i looked from one direction to the other there would be a smear of light like a shooting star going in the opposite direction of the way that I looked. And that was interesting. And that has continued. Um, typically after Iboga, people have residual visuals in the dark for the next couple weeks. And so when it's dark and my eyes aren't adjusted, I notice that happening. Or when it's been dark and the lights go on, um, I have those kind of visuals to varying levels of intensity. Ooh, Ranette teaching a yoga class. Hmm. Don't derive identity from friendships or partnerships too early on. Explain that. That's like, if you meet somebody and you start planning something that you're going to do together, like, um, Oh, let's see. When I meet somebody and we start plan making plans to do something like with Ben or um, uh, just like grand plans instead of you don't really know the person yet. Um, for me, I, I think it's it makes me think about being an only child and growing up kind of lonely, not exposed to other kids and um wanting to like wanting to be long in a group like wanting that sense of um a place in instead of being just me wanting to be a, a part of some somebody else a part of some other group and i think i i get i get really into um romantic relationships when they first start like highly identifying with like myself as being the partner to this person um and in a way that like compromises my that important connection to one's deep needs for for feeling satisfied and and also for um there's there's needs that we might have that I, there's there are needs that I may have that it's not appropriate or necessary or the right time for a partner to meet them. And yet when I find a partner, I'm like, Oh, they can meet that need for me. And I suddenly like absolve myself of that responsibility to myself and like, kind of like place it on them. Like I'm like identifying with it. I'm in this relationship now. So like, I don't have to do this alone. Like I can do this with my partner and that that's dangerous because it's dangerous to, to rest your identity in that new partnership or, or friendship too early on because things it's like that video we watched today where like the rat took these drugs and then he was like flying really, really, really high. And then suddenly you're flying so high that like you, you can't 
go any higher but you're still flapping and then it's like and then like the flapping stops and then you just like start to crash down so you have to wait till things level off and the you know you're adjusted you know the other person and um to not i don't know i don't know i don't i don't know exactly what it meant but that's just what i'm thinking of now I mean, anything that's new, it's like you get that new present or whatever it is. And it's uh-huh. like, oh, this is the best thing ever, thing ever. And then five days later, you're like, oh, that old thing? <laughs> and sometimes that can be, you know, can be really hard. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's not just an old present, it's a person. It's just like, well, I think, and I think in our society, we're so ready for instant gratification, instant connection. And like sometimes, sometimes that works and, it, and it's long lasting. But sometimes it, it's it's it feels right and then it seems right. But then everyone's putting up you know a facade and putting up this barrier, and then you those come away and it's like oh this is a lot different than I thought. So I think it's just be, I think it's just caught you know caution, caution to feeling really good at the mo you know at the moment because everything fades and you feel good in the moment and it's like you're like oh those other times that i felt bad they were because i didn't have this yes and now i have it so well that's good yeah i mean identifying with anything it's like oh we need we need this or it's like oh this is me but really what are we what what am i you know you are your awareness (laughs) Can you explain how that works? Not very, not very well. Can you explain adequately? I don't think so, but (laughs) I can try. Um, I mean, this is, this is, I think it's the Vedantic teaching. They call it, I believe. And it's that sensations, thoughts, feelings, everything you see, all comes through to this awareness. And awareness is basically the only thing that doesn't change. That makes That's the only thing that really makes you, you. And we all have it. We're all I. Everyone is I. And it's funny that I is also, E-Y-E is I. Where it's just like, it's the perception of everything. And so like, I'm just here, I'm sitting here right now and I like, I feel my body, I feel my thoughts, my feelings. And, um, uh, I'm not good at explaining things, so I don't know what else to say. Um, uh, then like, isn't it part of it? Like if I took away like one of your fingers and threw it into the other room, would you be in the other room? Isn't that a part of this breaking it down? A kind of, yeah. I mean, to one degree, well, it's like, Okay, like, so this is the example that Rupert Spira says, which is like, all right, on a TV screen, like, there's all these things going on in the TV screen, but you take away everything that's in the screen, what's left? The screen. And the screen is awareness. All the sounds, all the thoughts, all the, everything that's being shown, you still, you're left for the screen, and that's all that basically that there is. Um... 
That's interesting. Have I ever told you Stan Groff's TV metaphor for for like awareness? <laughs> no. Okay. But I mean, I assume, because this is like, I mean, yeah, I mean, he uses this metaphor, but this is like a ancient, I think, Indian, you know, or Buddhist teaching of like, you know, you know, who, and that's why you always ask the question, who am I? Who am I? And it, that that brings you, that question always brings you to awareness. Because when you just, when you ask yourself, are you aware? You, you think, well, yeah, I'm aware. I'm here. I'm, I'm looking at things. I'm hearing things. So I'm aware, but it brings you back. You like you soft focus. It's like a awareness. Am I aware? Yeah. But you like check it, 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 it like instant meditation where you're just, you don't, you don't have thoughts cause you're just besides, am I aware? And then you are awareness being aware of itself. Hmm. I met this meditator down in Costa Rica who said he sits for an hour at least a day and asks a question, who am I that is watching my mind Yeah, in here? You're the watcher, <laughs> the awareness. But what you were saying about Stan Groff? Stan Groff says that if you took apart your TV to try to figure out why Mickey Mouse was on the screen at seven o'clock, you'd never find the answer. Yeah. It's not in the wires. It's not in the wall. It's not in the box. Those are just the receiver for the picture that comes through. And it's to say that consciousness doesn't originate in ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then another thing about this this type of thinking is that um, um, I'm going blank. I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> On the... Yeah, I don't know. Well, if you think of it, let us know. Yeah. Um, then I came out of the experience very slowly and the the rest of the notes are from the next morning, but the peak lasted until about 6.30 a.m. I know I walked to the bathroom then and that was astounding to the facilitators that I was able to walk without aid, but I was and it was the, it was a, the feeling of having been through a lot and not knowing what any of it meant and walk back. And, and then it's like, I want to say that I slept at some point, but, but I didn't, I didn't sleep for days. Um, even these nights now, I haven't slept for more than a few hours at a time without waking up, feeling wide awake, not anxious necessarily. Sometimes I do feel a sense of dread, but it's just like really hard to sleep after Iboga. Really hard. <clears throat> um, but I was talking to the facilitators in the, like the come down and I learned that the Buiti flag is red, white, and black. This is after they taught me that Basse meant maggots. And it's red. So the flag is red for blood, white for birth, and black for death. So you can just see that this entire practice is shaped around the way I see it, the impermanence of form of any sort the cycle of and it's the cycle of life and and death the cycle of death <laughs> which is the cycle of life mm. i wrote shift the focus from the behavior to the source of the behavior i think that's good pretty typical psychedelic thought yeah the listening to the Buiti music during the experience. I'm going to actually put a song, a, a song or two in this episode. 
that made so much sense and made everything make so much sense and, and yet no sense. It definitely made things go faster and um, it, it brought more movement and more color into the visions and as opposed to the classical music, which I was listening to before. Ah, the goddess's name is Ishtar. Mm. There it is. <laughs> I have a question. So those are all those visions that you've that you had were just written down. Are there any vision, visions that you remember that you didn't write down? Were those all the visions you had? Were there more visions that you didn't, you know? Yeah, there were way more, way more visions than what I wrote. I just wrote the ones that were particularly funny or that I wanted to think about more later. Yeah. And I didn't want to be writing the whole time. Yeah. I mean, even just like, it's like six, six pages of notes with like four notes per page. And that was over the course of like eight hours. Yeah. So it's not that often. Yeah. I don't think I remember at this. It's like, I feel like I lose, I lose memory of it every day. Like yeah. I'm feeling further and further away from it. Um, and yet if I sit and I try, I can call back in, the feeling of the feeling like everything's okay in the world. Everything's moving along exactly as it should. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other questions? Would you take Iboga again? <laughs> yeah, I definitely would. I would take it if I had like a month to maybe like a week beforehand to prepare. And I like the way I prepared, but it was the end of the semester. It was very busy. If I had, um, two weeks afterward to like not have to talk to anybody unless, you know, like except people supporting my process and to be able to do some physical labor. It's, I'm really, I'm craving being physical now and it's kind of hard with, with the snowstorms, but um, I would do it again. And I would not do Ibogaine. I would not do the synthetic. Um, which you haven't yeah, done. You just did. Iboga. Yeah. I, I took Iboga, which has Ibogaine in it. It's like one of the psychoactive alkaloids, but it has 13, either 13 other or 13 total um, alkaloids, perhaps more. So what, what I took was like, had a lot more going on than, than just Ibogaine. Yeah. And it could have had less Ibogaine than like an average sample, which is why I was still able to walk and I was still mm. coherent. So, I mean, I think... Well, my understanding usually is like it's never the trip you want it's the trip you need mm -hmm. so going in with your intentions and coming out how does that like this how do you feel like about related to your intentions and related to what were you given what you needed were you given what you wanted or none of the above it's a good question i keep thinking about symposia's article series on iboga that just came out and that um one of the interviews with a um, member of Buiti said, don't come finding traditions of other people to try to solve your problems. And so I've been thinking about that. And while during the experience, I felt just right. And I, I felt like I could understand this medicine. Um, now I'm feeling disillusioned. Like, was that just like a a pompousness of um, feeling like I do feel confident in the psychedelic space. Sometimes like um, I feel open to the images that come up and like ask them questions. Uh, 
a lot of things have pointed me toward the need to investigate the psychedelic practices and the witchy practices of my lineage or just to learn about my lineage at all. And I'm still uninspired to do that for some reason, but um, it seems important and I'm not going to ignore that. So does that mean that it didn't, your intentions weren't met? Or I mean, obviously, it's only a couple of days after, so it's something that you have to integrate for a long time. But and like even I guess in a psychic experience, because I've I've, t- I've listened to a lot of people being like, it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't I didn't get enough from it. You know, if it's ayahuasca or if it's even mushrooms, and it's like people are looking for that that uh, four plus experience, you know, mm-hmm. or like that 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 transcendental experience, and they don't get it sometimes. Um, and like, what does that mean? And, and I know you kind of just said where it's like, well, maybe this wasn't my lineage or something like, you know, I don't know. Actually, yeah, you just reminded me of something that was coming through a lot during the experience that I didn't say, which is of how in the psychedelic experience, I'm totally focused on the moment and everything that's happening and that the way that I fill my schedule with so many obligations and I multitask so much because I feel that I have to in order to get things done in a timely way, the way that I take on more than is feasible to like live a spiritual life, that prevents me from having vision in my day to day. And that in a psychedelic experience, I can see things, I can tap into truth. um, And that's impossible to do if I'm Um, clouding my vision, clouding my reality with so much stimulation. And it feeds into the eating because the eating is like stop. It's like when I eat, I stop. And um, even if just for a few moments, like focus on doing something other than all the other things, it's like eating, it's pleasurable. Um, So having space in my life, in my schedule is a way to be less violent. And um, that's something that I really want to do. Going into this experience, I knew that I'm moving to the farm. So I knew that that time was coming anyway. And that, and I advocated for that to come. I, I sought out an experience to, to, to live in a more remote place for a while. And so I think that this encourages me that my intentions will continue to be fulfilled because they're not like the intentions that I set, I didn't come out of the experience with them met. No. However, I don't think that integration is not over, not even close. And I don't even think that the process is over. I still trust the process. And I saw, I saw myself being still. I saw myself sitting still which is just something I don't see on a week-to-week basis, that that like calmness of mind to just be and to just feel. I saw that in the experience and that I'm capable of that if I shape up my, um, my commitment game and meaning like just like cut some stuff out, say no. That's, that's my 2018. I, I'm going to be saying no to 
to some stuff. And then it's not even like I'm asked. It's not even like a lot is asked of me. I volunteer myself for a lot of things, but I'm not going to do that. Um, well, I just wanted to say that like, Leah, you are, I think an exception, like, 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 well, like the facilitator said, like, we've never seen anyone write during the middle of Iboga, you know, you're walking to the bathroom on your own. And even you've told me like, oh, you haven't really had a scary psychedelic experience, but you've done, you know, a substantial amount of different, different psychedelics and even Iboga, which is like probably this supposedly maybe the most scary and i don't know what it means and like and then like i mean one i think so like and i've even had this thought but like i don't this is just a thought they're like oh maybe you haven't gone deep enough or something like that because like i'm like i've got done ayahuasca and it like i'm still scared to go back and do it it's scary like it's the most scary thing in the world and even doing mushrooms is like the scariest thing in the world and just hearing i mean i know it's 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 a test to like, I think you have a certain gift and a certain strength. That's, that's it. That is something special or different or like the rarity. Cause I think if it's, you have less baggage in general, even though obviously everyone has their own stuff, but cause even they said, they said that like, you know, there is no typical Iboga experiences, but I feel like, this is even more atypical. I'm not going to, I don't know. I don't know anything about Iboga really. So I can't say about that, but so I don't know what that, I don't know. I just think it, I don't know, especially people who, who maybe who want to do Iboga or something like that. I, I don't know. Like you're, you're damn strong and like fearless. And it's definitely inspiration to me <laughs> to go deep, you know, cause I know that like, wow, like you've, you know, and I don't know if it's maybe that you're like very grounded and in uh, or what is it i don't know but it's uh, it's pretty amazing <laughs> i have yeah if i'm with someone and something happens and it scares us i it's like i'll feel scared for a second and then i if i see that they're scared i won't feel scared because i'm just, i'm just like it doesn't make sense for us to both be scared like someone has to be brave and and and, and there've been a lot of situations like when i was in the deep in the woods and um went like skinny dipping and got back and all of our clothes were covered in bees and I've never been stung by a bee and I'm allergic to everything. So I'm like probably allergic to bees and had to pick up my clothes article by article and have the bees swarm around me and crawl in my nostrils and in my ears. And yet I didn't feel afraid at all because it just didn't make sense. And that's like, I have a very strong mind. It's like, a burro. It's so mm. stubborn. And I think that that helps me out in the psychedelic space sometimes because I'm not, and, and it's like physical pain too. Like, you know, I um, have been lifting for several years and um, I'll go to like 95% pain w- without even thinking about stopping. And then it's like when it gets close to like my limit, that's when I, I, I won't push. I won't, I like have a hard time going exactly to my limit and <sighs> altered consciousness experiences are, they deliver this sort of intensity that I don't, I've never gotten in, in any other thing and I enjoy it. I, I get a lot out of it. Um, and I feel that I can give a lot back from having been through these things. 
Yeah, I think you're a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, th- there are a lot of people out there, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty amazing, you know, that you come, you know, fearless coming, coming, coming out, you know, and it's like, okay, that, that was that. Let's get some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure that there's going to be a scary experience in the future, and I'll, I'll think back on this conversation and be like, Matt, you called it in. <laughs> <laughs> You called it. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Would you like to come back sometime? Of course. <laughs> what would you like to talk about? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever you think you'd like to talk to me about. Mm. I, think you, I think you know what you want to talk to me about. Mm. I don't know what I want to talk about. Mm. <laughs> I have some ideas. Cool. Consciousness Positive Radio. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
jungle in Costa Rica, two months post-ceremony, two months in a week, actually. Just finished Envision Festival, and it's time to record this reflection. I know that the integration process is still underway, like probably not even close to being where I want to be with understanding the significance of this event, this, event, this undertaking, um, but I do have some things I want to share. I didn't feel the opioid reset. I expect to go in and come out and just not be conditioned to use food as a comfort. Um, food still does something for me, but I find that there's more pause and I'm more conscious in my eating. 
It's like iboga helps you get free, but it doesn't free you. Only you can free you. And the freedom comes through your actions. The experience did clear away impediments to connection with my intuition. I feel it's stronger. If I don't listen to my intuition, I suffer more immediately and more perceptibly. I feel less attachment to romantic partners and to family and friends and to identity even. I'm not deriving identity from friendships and partnerships. Um, identification doesn't work. The way I see it now is it can help us make sense of our experience in the context of our environment to have identity. But, you know, and, and it's useful, of course, for social justice work and for understanding marginalization and how to lift up um, the entire the entire global culture by recognizing um, that everyone needs access to resources in order for all of humanity and all of the planet to thrive. But ultimately, I think people must remain aware of the truth that none of us is really different or separate, and identification can just increase that. So I still felt I still felt and feel unsure if I'm entitled to this. Um, it's not a tradition that comes from where I come from. The uh, series symposia released about Iboga mentioned that it's potentially, you know, it's going to run out. It's not sustainably being harvested or grown now. Um, also in their article series, there were a lot of things that, just different opinions expressed. There isn't a clear stance that anyone's taking. But for example, one article said, um, this was a guy from Gabon, a Buitist. The Western world cannot receive the benefits of Iboga if they don't try to understand and assimilate their traditional approach. This other guy who's been living in Gabon, French guy, has taken Iboga before and been there for a few decades, I think, said, the authentic Buiti tradition, what is it? The answer I got was that this idea of authenticity is an odd idea. It's a very Western idea. Buiti considers itself as a culture that's changing. That resonated with me a lot in terms of change from what my experience was. I read Parable of the Sower by Ursula K. Le Guin and Island by Aldous Huxley since the experience. And what I get from both of those stories is all you can count on is change. All that is real is your awareness. That's it. And to conclude that the only thing that is real is our awareness even makes me question what realness is. In our society, we're so ready for instant connection, gratification. Sometimes it works and it's long lasting. It feels right. It seems right. But then that changes and it can let you down, especially if you identify with it. I saw a lot of changes in the experience, impermanence. The most profound thing for me, seeing all the cosmos shifting, helped me understand that deeper. Seeing time, a 360 degree view of everything, watching the constant exploding and creation and shifting of all particles of matter that compose the multiverse collapsing in on each other in constant evolution. It was decentralized. I saw everything from a fixed point that was everywhere. I saw the shifting of the universe. I saw the seeing things exactly as they are, because we know that to be true. Everything's in constant motion. 
but not with my perspective being the center point of all of the universe. Just no center at all. Vision from everywhere, a spread of things, nothing more important than anything else. And by virtue of that, all things necessary, important, and equally sacred. So were my intentions met now? I can feel myself farther into the process, and my subconscious has been helping me. I'm not people-pleasing. I'm having an easier time finding what I need in order to feel still. Uh, during the episode, I wanted to make sure I mentioned the sigil. So the sigil that was made for me, and I'm posting a picture with this episode, is like a circle with two X's inside of it, and they're crossing. So by the way that they cross, it could be a single diamond in the center with like lines of energy coming out of it. Or it could be two people holding hands with their outsize, outside arms raised up, like kind of in unity or like in shared power. When I saw it that way, it fit in with all the other dichotomies and polarities and impossible possible things that made sense in that state only. In my case, that perhaps I'm always going to be on this road alone. This is my journey, my solitary task but that I have a hand to hold and I always have support when I need it to lift me up and to remind me of my power and the power that comes from community. Although I hold the ability to ease most situations, I recognized sometimes the right thing is just to let the situation unfold. That's given, that's allowed me to keep a lot of energy and power for myself and for working on my things instead of always giving it out to soothing what's wrong or or what I perceive to be out of balance in my environment. So in conclusion, I would say these couple things. Iboga is a major undertaking. It needs weeks to integrate. Weeks during which you should not have anything else planned. I believe this experience is every human's birthright. And as such, the sustainable growing and harvesting of Iboga must be prioritized, as well as protection um, of the people that this culture comes from, protection from exploitation, uh, especially of their natural environment, and cultural appropriation of their resources that would further marginalize them. If you want to come on the show and talk about your Ebogues experience, I would love to do a follow-up episode to this. I know that the story only continues to change, so I'll leave it at that for now. Basse. Oh, my God.